We're kicking off this new series called Beautiful Today. We're going to look at eight statements given by Jesus that are often referred to as the Beatitudes. Now, if you've been around church much at all, you may have the same questions that I always had about the Beatitudes, namely, what the heck is a beatitude? Why do they even call it that? What, what does that word come from? And so as I've been uh, studying, preparing for this week, what I found out is this. The word beatitude uh, comes from the Latin root of the word called beatus. Um, beatus is a Latin word where we also get our, uh, root, our word beautiful, as you can see by looking at that, which is where we got the name for this series. But the word itself means blessed. And as you read through these eight statements, what you see is that our assumptions are going to be challenged. Like that Jesus says things are, but people are blessed that we don't always think of as blessed. And so that's what's gotten me really excited about this series called Beautiful. Now, some of us are going to have our thoughts about Christianity turned upside down during this series. I think and he's already, the Lord's already been working in my heart even this week, but we're going to see how Jesus paints a picture of what a truly beautiful and meaningful path it is to follow him. I wonder how many of you remember this story from last summer. Uh, the, the idea was Warren Buffett auctioned off on eBay, lunch with him, and it went for $2.2 million dollars. Now, this came last year in 2014. Now, I know the proceeds from this auction went to charity, but can you even imagine paying this much money for an hour or two of somebody's time? I can't even. But, but on the other hand, if, if you're going to take advice from someone about money, uh, why not do it from somebody who knows what they're talking about, right? I mean, uh, Warren Buffett, if you don't know, is the uh, chairman, CEO, major, majority shareholder in a company called Berkshire Hathaway, which owns brands that you would recognize. But he bought most of his Berkshire Hathaway stock when it was just a small textile manufacturer in New England for about $11.50 a share in 1964. $11.50 a share is what he paid for most of those shares. Today, every share is worth $215,000. Now, if you can imagine, that makes his total stake upward of $56 billion, billion with a B. And so the guy knows what he's doing when it comes to finances, right? Can you imagine what it would be like to get advice from someone who's at the top of their game? Like, like maybe you like to cook. Can you imagine getting some cooking tips from a guy like Alton Brown or Rachel Ray or the Pioneer Woman, somebody who uh, teaches cooking on television, right? Maybe you play basketball. What would it be like to get shooting advice from a guy like Steph Curry? You know, you know I, if you guys know me, you know I'll do anything to keep from admitting that LeBron James is the best player in basketball, right? So Steph Curry is the guy. Did you see what he did earlier this year? A, a, a report on ESPN said that in practice, he hit 94 out of 100 three-pointers. Most people can't do that from the free throw line. He hit 77 in a row. That's crazy. That's insane. If you're going to play basketball, why not take shooting tips from Steph Curry? Uh, maybe you have a new puppy. We, we got a new puppy this week. Maybe you could use some time with the dog whisperer, Caesar Milan, right? Uh, learn how to train your dog right. Or you're redecorating your house and you just found out the Property Brothers, Jonathan and Drew Scott, are gonna, they want to help. They're going to be there. They want to help you. Or you're trying to pick out a wedding dress and you score some time with Vera Wang herself. Why not, right? Uh, or maybe you really, really, really want to get in shape and so you decide to schedule some time with Richard Simmons. <laughs> Wait, on second thought, maybe Jillian Michaels would be a better choice for that, right? Well, I mentioned these people at the top of their games, like at the, the height of their respective fields for a reason. At the time when Jesus spoke the words we're going to read today in Matthew 5, he was at the top of his game. He had become very popular. Everybody wanted to hear from Jesus. Everybody was ready to listen to him. 
Jesus' ministry all started when he stepped into the public scene by being baptized by his cousin John, uh, who we now know as John the Baptist. Uh, One day, John was preaching and baptizing in front of a crowd of people at the Jordan River uh, down in the south of Israel at a place near where we call Jericho. And John saw Jesus coming and pointed to him and says, look, the Lamb of Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was John's way of saying, hey, there he is. There's the one. That's the chosen one. That's the guy that you want to follow. That's a pretty big endorsement, don't you think? Uh, John the Baptist was a pretty popular evangelist at the time. People knew that he was a prophet from God. And he's pointing to Jesus, saying this is the guy. Well, John baptized Jesus, and Matthew records that when Jesus went under the water and then came back out of it, a large group of people were there, and they experienced something remarkable. In Matthew 3, 16, it says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, and with him I'm well pleased. Now, we don't know if anyone other than Jesus actually heard this. Okay, but if they did, can you imagine how these words would have had an impact on the crowds that were there? How they would have caught the attention of the people that were there in the crowd? A voice from heaven? That's powerful stuff. Well, from there, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And then he spent some time with the men who would later become his disciples. They traveled to places like Galilee and Jerusalem and Samaria. And Jesus taught as they went. He taught, and then he'd perform miracles as he went. He'd he'd go around... uh, you know, healing people. And we're not just talking about, you know, toothaches and migraines and things like that. Like, read for yourself what Jesus was doing. You'll see uh, he was curing every kind of life-threatening disease. Matthew 4.23 says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought him brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan started to follow him. Now, Decapolis is a Greek word. It means ten cities. The Decapolis was a series of ten cities uh, that take up part of what is now Israel, Jordan, and Syria, a pretty wide swath of the Middle East. So it's fair to say, I think, that Jesus was becoming pretty popular. All that to say that he was at the top of his game. In fact, when Jesus spoke the words that we're going to read today, um, large crowds were gathering to hear what he had to say next. And anyone who listened to Jesus, uh, anyone who heard him talk at this point, were saying, people were saying, that he's speaking like one who had authority. And whenever Jesus spoke with authority, what he'd talk about was a coming kingdom. And so Matthew 4, 17 says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, this kingdom that Jesus spoke about is unlike a kingdom that would be the norm of what we would think about, the the normal kingdom in the world today. It's not the kingdom of an earthly king, but rather a kingdom where people experience God personally. And they have all the benefits of God's favor. Now, if you can imagine that, this kingdom that Jesus described is not just someday in the future, but it's a kingdom for right now. Now, That's why Jesus went around telling people the kingdom of God is near. He said, the kingdom of God is here. It's among you, uh, and I'm here so people can experience it. Naturally, people wondered about this kingdom and what was it really going to be like and what could they do to be a part of it. 
And so we'll start a little bit early, a little bit before Matthew 5, but in Matthew 4.25, it says, Large crowds from, the, from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Shh. He's going to talk about the kingdom. That's what they're thinking, right? Who gets to be in God's kingdom? I mean, why would they have been concerned about a question like that? Well, because the only kingdom that they had been experienced, uh, had experienced to this point was a real backbreaker. It was a kingdom where the religious leaders of the day, now remember, the Jews were in the Roman Empire, but they weren't really of the Roman Empire. They had their own leadership, and the leaders of that day uh, had set the bar incredibly high for what it looked like uh, to be a follower of God. They, they had set this bar so high that, they, that it, there was kind of an in crowd and an out crowd. And many of the people that came to see Jesus, we see, were in the out crowd, religiously speaking. They were people in the crowd that had their checklist, you know, that they were waiting to hear, okay, when he talks about the kingdom of God and who gets to be in it, okay, yep, I did that, yep, yep, that's me too, okay, good, I'm in. That's what they were waiting for. So in Matthew 5, he starts to speak, and I can just imagine this hush falling across the crowd, shh, 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 as they anticipate his first words, and the first words out of his mouth are so important. He says, Uh, It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are, blessed are. Say those words with me, blessed are. Okay, what's he gonna say? The entire passage we're gonna study these next eight weeks hangs on those two words, blessed are. And what does blessed mean? Well, we say bless you when somebody sneezes, right? Um, we, uh, tradition says that when somebody sneezes, their heart skips a beat, and so they could have died when they sneeze. Anybody ever die from a sneeze? I don't know. But we say bless you because, hey, we made it through the other side, right? Like we are blessed because we made it through a sneeze. I don't think that's what it's talking about. We say we're blessed when we get a raise or when we get a new car. You know, I'm just blessed. We, we say we're blessed when sometimes we mean we're lucky, Right? And so, you know, God's just really blessing me. I got the best parking place in the mall, you know? And so we, we use that word kind of nonchalantly. We just throw it out there. But the, the word that Jesus is using here is so much deeper than that. What, what the word blessed here in Matthew is so much richer than that. John MacArthur, pastor and author John MacArthur, uses, uh, defines Jesus' use of the word blessed in, in this sense, uh, instance as a deep joy or an inward contentedness, not affected by circumstances. So it doesn't have anything to do with what we're experiencing. It has to do with like, who we are in Christ, right? Uh, another theologian says it means God's favor is upon. You know, so blessed are. God's favor is upon. Pastor and author John Ortberg writes that in the ancient world, there were two kinds of blessing statements. There was the first that he calls statements of instruction. So it's you will be blessed if you do this, right? Blessed are those who obey, Blessed are those who are generous. There's, there's some instruction behind. These blessing statements are designed to teach us how to live or how to act or what to do. But there was a second kind of blessing statement that, that was much more rare. We might look at these as uh, statements of surprise. All right? These were the blessings given to people of Israel when they were struggling, when they were feeling hopeless. Uh, the blessings urged people in the most difficult circumstances to hold on to not give up. And these statements of surprise proclaim that the one that was struggling had reason for hope. When Jesus began his message with blessed arm, my guess is that people in the crowd were expecting a statement of instruction. You know, they expected to hear what would be required of them in order to be included in the kingdom of God. But what Jesus gave them instead was a statement of surprise. 
Ortberg writes, the Beatitudes are designed to shock people into realizing now that the blessing, the good life, that we all drive ourselves crazy and frantic and busy trying to grab a hold of, the good life, the really good life, the life in the kingdom is now available to anyone who wants it through personal contact with this man, Jesus. And so we we look at these words, these uh, Beatitudes, these blessings from Jesus. Please realize he's not saying try hard to live like this so that you can be blessed. He's not saying try hard to earn this. He's He's not saying try to be poor in spirit. What he's saying is people who are already like this, well, you're in good shape. Okay? He's saying blessed are, God's favor is upon, a beautiful life is theirs, a beautiful life is available and ready to be taken. Who are the blessed ones? Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm guessing that the last word that people in the crowd intended to hear after blessed are is the word poor. All right, Because in those days, uh, the blessed wouldn't be poor, the blessed would be rich. If you were blessed by God, you would be, no, no, he doesn't get it. You know, rich people are blessed. How, how can you be blessed when you're poor in spirit, when you're poor in anything, for that matter? I mean, does it doesn't sound very beautiful, does it? I wonder when you read that passage, when you hear about poor in spirit, what comes to mind? I know that my assumptions have kind of been challenged. When I think poor in spirit, I think weak. Uh, I think poor financially. Uh, but that's not what poor in spirit means. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, I think there's three things that we can kind of gather uh, from the way Jesus talks, uh, talks about this. For one thing, the poor in spirit know that they have nothing to offer God. They have nothing to offer God. The, the checklisters in the crowd uh, would have been caught off guard by this. But you know, it filled the common people with hope. Uh, they knew where they stood. They knew they didn't measure up to the standard that was established by the religious elite of the day. Uh, They knew that they weren't a part of the in crowd, that they were a part of the out crowd. Uh, But that's what made Jesus different. Here's this this teacher, this rabbi who's traveling around, who is teaching with authority, and he's saying, the poor in spirit, they're the ones that actually get in. The poor in spirit are the ones who enjoy God's favor. The poor in spirit are the ones who are blessed. It's a powerful statement. And in this one statement, Jesus reminds us that his kingdom is not like the kingdom of this world. In fact, it's often upside down from what we expect. When we think of what we think of as beautiful and what God sees as beautiful are often not the same thing. The world sees beauty this way and God sees beauty that way. In fact, one of the things we'd love to do during this series is to see what people are experiencing as beautiful in your world. So we are, we are setting up, we're not setting up, we would like you to set up a hashtag on Instagram or Twitter if you're on one of those two social media accounts and you take a picture anytime you see something that you think is beautiful that other people may not, uh, use the hashtag GC, I did the Jimmy Fallon there, use the hashtag uh, GC Beautiful, Genesis Church Beautiful, GC Beautiful, and tag that and we'll look at those and we might use some of those later. But, but the world would say, those who have it all together, the spiritually sufficient, are blessed. You know, Jesus says, no, the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, are blessed. If you believe you belong to God's kingdom today, why is that? You know, what have you done to deserve that? Is it because you work really hard at being a good person? I mean, thinking like that's only going to hold up for so long, that effort does not get God's attention. And so if I could just shoot straight with you for a minute, there are people in this room today who think you're in the in crowd because you're living a good life. 
you're really nice to people. You hold doors open when you go into buildings. You give to your church, maybe even tithe. You serve every once in a while when you can, when you're not too busy. You uh, try not to cuss too much. You only drink on weekends. And you think, you know what, that's going to get, you got your own little checklist of the things that you need to do and why God should let you in. And in fact, he should be glad to have me in his kingdom. And in fact, maybe he owes me because of the way I've been living my life for him. The poor in spirit aren't like that. They know that they have nothing to offer God. The second, the poor in spirit know that God loves them just as they are. God loves them as they are and not as they should be. You know, the poor in spirit don't carry the weight of trying to earn God's favor. They know they can never do enough to deserve his love. They, they don't suffer fear that his love will be taken away because they know they didn't earn it in the first place. Who are the poor in spirit according to Jesus? The poor in spirit are those who understand their need for rescue. The poor in spirit are those who realize they're totally and completely dependent on God. They know they have nothing to offer God. They know that God loves them the way they are, not as they should be. And finally, the third thing is the poor in spirit know that the invitation is for them. Author Dallas Willard puts, this, this, puts it this way. He says, the flunkouts and dropouts and burned outs, the broke and broken, the drug heads and the divorced, the HIV positive and the herpes ridden, the brain damaged, the incurably ill, the barren and the pregnant too many times or at the wrong time, the overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployed, the unemployable, the swindled, the shoved aside, the replaced, the parents with children living on the street, the children with parents not dying in the rest home, the lonely, the incompetent, the stupid, the emotionally starved or the emotionally dead, and on and on and on. It's true that earth, is it true that earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal? It's true. That is precisely the gospel of heaven's availability that comes to us through the Beatitudes. And you don't have to wait till you're dead. Jesus offers, all to such, all, offers to all such circumstances. The condition of life sought for by human beings through the ages is attained in the quietly transforming friendship of Jesus. Jesus himself said it this way, Matthew 11. He says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you come here on Sunday and you're ashamed because when I say open the, your Bible to whatever, and you think, you see everybody else like flipping right to that page, and you're like, is that the old tenement or the new tenement? I don't even know, you know, and you're... Or when the words disappear from the screen during a song and Cameron says, hey, sing this with us. And you go, uh, 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 and everybody else is singing. And you're like, should I know this song? Have we done this before? How should I know this? If that's you, the kingdom of heaven is yours. The invitation is for you. Jesus invites you in. If you feel like everybody else leaves here on Sunday morning refreshed and renewed and like you just leave shame because you realize all the stuff that you did this week that didn't line up with what I said or what Scripture said or with what Cameron was singing about. Jesus invites you in. The kingdom is for you. If you ever feel like you're just not that good a Christian, he calls to you. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Jesus calls out to all of those who are tired of messing up, tired of breaking down, uh, can't stand up for themselves. Tired of falling off the wagon. Jesus calls out to the bully, the picked on, the spat upon, the put upon. He calls out to the bankrupt, the debtors, and the down and outers. He calls out to those with a past and with a present. He calls out to the adulterous, the promiscuous, the sexually confused. He calls out to the self-righteous. 
an offer of an invitation to leave your life of trying to work for his love. Jesus calls out to anyone who's tired or weary or burned out on religion. He says, come to me. Come to me, all you are poor in spirit. I'll take up your burden. I'll give you a soft place to land. And I'll give you new life. There are days when I still try to earn God's love. There are days when I still try to prove myself to him, to prove myself worthy. Maybe the same is true for you. You know, I spent most of my life trying to prove myself to God. Maybe you did too. Or maybe you gave up a long, long time ago. You figured you messed up enough. It didn't matter anymore anyway. God is never going to love you. You've got no chance with him. Here's what Jesus is saying. And here's what I'm praying that he will open your eyes to see. He, he loves you as you are and not as you think you should be. Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. His love is for you. Your life has meaning and purpose and value and significance. Jesus is yours. You are the blessed ones. To be poor in spirit is a beautiful thing. The band's going to come out, and uh, they're going to sing a song for us right now, a song that talks about the importance of uh, realizing who we are apart from Jesus and the incredible difference that Christ makes in our lives. And as, as they think, sing this song, I just want you to think about the difference that Jesus might make in your life today. I want you to remember and reflect on the fact that there's nothing you can do to make God love you. He sent Jesus for you. He sent his son to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin. Jesus' death on the cross removed the barrier that separates you and me from God. And his resurrection proves that he can overcome anything in our lives.